the Lord. That's wonderful. Amen. Let's stand and take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. The Gospel of John chapter 2. If you're just making your way in, welcome to church this morning. And we're so delighted you're here. And we are praying that the Lord will meet with us in a special way. And uh, this morning we'll continue our series on the entitled Yours Forever. Hope you'll be in prayer for our Mother's Day service next Sunday morning. And we want all mothers being in attendance. We have a special gift for the mothers who will be here for that. And then on Sunday evening, next Sunday evening, the West Coast Baptist College, an ensemble will be here. And uh, part of our special music next Sunday night, we're looking forward to that. Tonight, we're looking forward to the evening service, which, which is a whole different service. And we are, I've got a message from 2 Samuel 13 that will be helpful to us. It's entitled, Can We Be Friends? And I think it will be big help to us understand what are biblical friendships this morning. Now, if you don't have a Bible, look next to you. Or you don't have a King James Version, but I'll look next to you and see if your neighbor has that. And if you'll just lean over and let them share their Bible with you. I think it'll be a blessing to help you this morning as we look at a very special subject. Chapter 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. Just a thought there. You're not supposed to address your mother, woman. That was just something they did that day. Amen. I saw some young people get a smile on their face. That's not what we're teaching you. Amen. If you do that, your mother should invoke child discipline. Amen. He said, what is that? You'll find out. Just try it. Amen. Verse 5. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he saith unto them, unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Let's do something fun this morning. If you've got a pen, I'm going to highlight some words. I want you either to underline or to circle. We have a highlighter. You can highlight it. And I just want you to catch some thoughts with me, okay? In verse 1, I want you to underline the word marriage. On verse 2, I want you to underline the words Jesus was called and then to the marriage. Then I want you to notice verse 3, underline the phrase, the sentence, they have no wine. Then verse 5, I want you to underline the statement, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Then in verse 6, I want you to underline the phrase, water, six water pots of stone. Then I want you to notice verse 7 and underline the phrase where Jesus says, fill the water pots with water. Then in verse 7, underline, and they fill them to the brim, circle the word brim. And then I want you to notice that the, uh, the phrase in verse 9, but the servants which drew the water knew, underline that. Then underline verse 10, that was kept the good wine until now. 
Our focus this morning, we, I've preached many times from this passage of Scripture. I think I preached on this last year, but I'm going to apply this this morning to a two key words we find in verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice that the event we're looking at this morning is about a marriage. Jesus was called to a marriage. A little girl named Susie came home from school and told her mother about the story about Snow White. You probably read it or seen it if you were a child growing up. And she said, yeah, it was a remarkable story, mother. She said, I, you know, I know it's a fairy tale. And this, this girl named Snow White was put to sleep. And a guy named Prince Charming came along and pecked her on the cheek. And she woke up. And she said, Mommy, do you know what happened after that? And the mommy said, of course, like fairy tales. She said, well, they lived happily ever after and the little girl frowned and said, no, mommy, they didn't live happily ever after. They got married after that. And uh, I think that's how some people look at marriage. They look at something when, you know, they're, they're starry-eyed about it, and then they get married. They say, well, we're into something here that we didn't expect. And this morning, we want to see something very remarkable about a marriage today, a marriage that Jesus attended, and speak to our hearts about marriage, about our homes, and about our, 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 our relationship to the Lord. Now, Father, this morning, as we look at the subject of the miracle marriage, we ask today that the presence of the Lord would be with us, and we know He is, and we ask this morning that you would cleanse us from all filthiness of flesh and superfluity of naughtiness, and that we may receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save souls. Lord, this is a very powerful passage with many, many wonderful applications for our lives. And Lord, we just come today to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and uh, Lord, for enlightenment from your word, and that is the psalmist prayed that you'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. And we pray this morning that this will be a life-changing time, that just as Jesus took something and miraculously transformed it, we pray this morning that you'll take us and miraculously transform our lives as well there too. And we'll thank you for what you'll do on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Very quickly, for some of you who've been in and out of the services of Sunday morning or new to the church, we've been in a mini-series called Yours Forever. And in the first week, we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 8, and I preached a message entitled, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Then that same evening, we went to Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 22 to 33, as Paul also spoke about marriage, and the title of that sermon was, Tying Up Loose Ends. In the second week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and we saw Peter gives us instruction on the matter of order in the house. That evening, I preached a message entitled, or the, and then last week, I preached a message on the, in the morning from Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, which I pray that you'll go back and listen to, or, or if you, and if you haven't listened to listen for the first time, entitled Homeland Security and the proper, the proper security we need in our homes. And then last Sunday night, we preached a message entitled The Serving Family from Joshua chapter 24. This morning, we are at a marriage ceremony that Jesus attended. It's the, actually the very first public appearance of Christ. We actually did something in his ministry there. And uh, it looks at the subject here about a marriage that had a challenge. And it, and, it, and it causes us to ask the question, how do you restore a marriage that is on the road to hitting rock bottom? Every marriage is going to have some challenges and it will have some maybe some brief moments or extended moments where it's going to have some challenges. And the question we're going to look at this morning is, what do you do for your marriage when it hits rock bottom? What do you do if you're, you're at this place where your marriage needs a recharge or maybe your family life needs a recharge? And today I've, I have entitled this message, The Miracle Marriage. What do you do if you're in a situation where you need a literal miracle in your home? A literal miracle of God. How does that happen? Is God 
God's still in the business of performing miracles? I'm talking about something supernatural. Is God able to change what, what we think is unchangeable? And we're going to see this morning how God performs miracles for depleted marriages, depleted lives, depleted families, and depleted Christians. Very quickly this morning, would you notice number one in verses one to two? We see a celebrated event. Jesus is at the outset, the very beginning of his three-year ministry. Leading into chapter 2, Jesus has gone, just gone down to Bethabara, down to the, 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 where the Jordan River is at, about 60 to 70 miles from Cain of Galilee. And bear in mind, he did that all by, by foot. He walked about 67 miles away. And there at Bethabara, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And his ministry was inaugurated by the Holy Spirit and actually given approval by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as they met with him there at, at the Jordan River. And then from there, Jesus walked 60 to 70 miles back up north and made his way to the Lake of Galilee. As he was there at the Lake of Galilee... He was drawing disciples to himself. He had met Andrew and Peter down there at the Jordan River. And then later on, he took them back with him. And as he did so, uh, he met, uh, we read here, Philip and Nathaniel. He met them and brought them along with us. So he's there at the, at the shoreline of the western shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And as we get into chapter 2, we find Jesus walking another 10 or 12 miles westward to a city called Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana of Galilee was on the outskirts of the, of the, of the lake area. It was about 10 miles away westward and very close to maybe another seven or eight miles away from there was the hometown where Jesus was born which is Nazareth now my point is saying all that to you this morning is that as we begin this story it's just encouraging to me as we look at a very needy situation Jesus is always there at the right moment for you and me aren't you glad about that this morning amen he's always there at the right moment for you and I another thing we see here is Jesus is never too busy for people because he's the son of God he could put him in the right place at the right time. And Jesus Christ is never too busy for people. Now listen to me this morning. As Christians, we want to do everything for everybody, but it's impossible for us to be everywhere at all times for, uh, for, for other people. But you can be assured this morning, though someone else may not be there for you, the Lord is always there for you. And Jesus traveled whatever distance necessary to touch lives and make a difference. Jesus would be there for people that he had a casual relationship with to some degree, but he would be there in a very big way. And you'll notice here as we're in this passage of Scripture, we come to the occasion of a marriage. Jesus has walked 10 miles from the Sea of Galilee into the, into the westward from there to a city called Cana of Galilee. And we find that this marriage that he's at has already been in existence for three days. Now notice at this, this celebrated event, we see the sacred ceremony. In verse 1, it says, On the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now the Jews, when they celebrated marriages, they celebrated marriages. Most, most, um, in fact, every, every, everywhere around the world, marriage is a big deal. No matter whether they're Christian or non-Christian, marriage is a big deal. If you grew up in a, in, a, in a village area, the entire village or town area celebrates that marriage. Marriage is a big deal. And back in those days, it was a big deal. In fact, that's why we call sometimes the marriage the big day for the groom and the bride. We call it their big day there. It's a big deal. I mean, there's just a lot of just investment, a lot of time. It's a time when the, the, the bride and the groom are put on center stage and they're very special and, and 
everyone that comes in attendance for that wedding comes to honor them and to and to acknowledge them and to give their best wishes and prayers for them. And of course, they, that's a time when we, 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 the parents are also acknowledged. And of course, they're very happy parents are seeing their, their children get married off there. And so marriage, no matter where it's at in the world, is always a very, very big event. And you'll notice here in Cain of Galilee, this was a big event. Most likely, everyone in Cain of Galilee attended this marriage. They were there. They bought their presents. And when the Jews celebrated a marriage, it wasn't a one-day event. You know, we go to marriage here in America. It's a one-day event in most cases. And it's just a very involved event. It's all day long. And if you look at the timelines, I get with married, uh, engaged couples. And I say, first thing I ask them is we start working through things. I say, I ask them, do you have your timeline worked up? And they don't have their timeline worked up. I say, I need to see your timeline. We need to look at your timeline because we want to be careful that you don't make it too packed. We also want to be careful that you don't keep it too loose. We want to make sure that all the, you have gaps there and you have contingency plans, a number of things like that. But when they did a marriage, they did a marriage for seven days. It was a seven-day festivity. So when they did that, people that were invited were expected to stay and basically kind of camp out there and they would eat and they would drink and they would eat and they would drink and they would eat and the drink would be ongoing. It would be kind of like having a buffet 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you like eating, you'd enjoy being at a Jewish wedding. Amen? And back at that time, that's what they did. And so the wedding had already been going on for three days. And uh, Jesus' mother was invited. Mary had been invited. She had already been there from the very first day. Notice in verses 1 and 2, Jesus doesn't arrive until the third day. Three days ago, actually uh, towards the tail end of the third day, is when Jesus comes. So he comes to this marriage ceremony. And it's a, it's a very wonderful time. And I call it a sacred ceremony because marriage was very sacred. You know, it blesses my heart that Jesus came to that marriage. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is holy. Marriage should never be taken lightly. A wedding ceremony should not be taken lightly. It is sacred because the bridegroom and the bride have been preparing for a minimum of one year for that special day. The bridegroom has been saving and preparing a house so that on that on the day of the wedding the day that the, the, the ceremony starts he's going to go to the bride's home and he's going to lead a procession there and he's going to serenade her and as he does so she comes out with the bridesmaids and together they follow the bridegroom and they follow him back to his home to the place he's prepared for her sounds familiar amen john chapter 14 i go to prepare a place for you and so he's prepared a place for her and they take them there and this procession follows him it's a very exciting thing and it's sacred because it's 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 sanctioned by god the bible Bible tells us about the very first marriage in Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And I cannot drive that home more than, than we have than these last several weeks because marriage is ordained by God. It is a God-ordained relationship. It has the blessing of God upon it. Not as the world has redefined, but as the Bible defines. The Bible defines a man and a woman. And so you watch here, the Bible says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. God is saying marriage is, is His mandate there for a couple. Not to live together, not to cohabitate together and experiment whether or not they can get along with each other. They need to be at the place of realizing that they are committed to this relationship. Marriage has the blessing of God because we know in Proverbs 18.22, it tells us we have God's favor and blessing upon Him. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Every man who's found his wife and is with his wife, the Bible says this, you have, you found a good thing. You ought to say amen to that. Amen. You found a good thing. You found a good cause. You found a good reason for life. You found a good purpose for living. You found a good thing. And the Bible says you've obtained the favor of the Lord. I want you to understand something. Generally speaking across the board, marriage is honorable on all. And a man that finds a woman, finds his wife, finds a good thing. Listen, that generally speaking has the hand of God and the blessing of 
caught upon marriage. God did not design marriage for people to be miserable. God designed marriage for people to be happy. Don't see a lot of happy people this morning. I think I need to repeat that. God designed marriage for people to be... Am I in the right church? My goodness. This is a bunch of you I didn't marry. I need to kick you all through premarital counseling here, amen? Postmarital counseling. Amen. Brother Aaron, are you happy? You better say it. She's going to knock you out, brother. <laughs> marriage is sacred. But you know what's most sacred about marriage? It's not the clothing. It's not the timelines. It's not the food that will follow. You know what's most sacred about marriage is that moment when the bridegroom and the bride, they stand there and they're exchanging their vows. That is the most critical moment of the wedding as far as everyone's concerned because it is a public testimony that this man and this woman are making a binding pledge between themselves. It is a lifelong pledge. It is a pledge that says, Till death do us part. It is a covenant in the eyes of God. It is a pledge and commitment of two lives to each other. It is a pledge that the bridegroom belongs to the bride and the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Listen this morning. When they do that in our typical marriage, they exchange rings. They give rings as a token, as a symbol of the fact that they have pledged their lives to each other. A ring is very symbolic because it's circular in nature. And it speaks about the circular, unending love, the perpetuity of love that should be found in a marriage. Marriage is bound together by a sacred testimony. I was reading a story about a man who, uh, soon after he got married, he took his wedding ring off because he felt like it was bothering him. And he took his wedding ring off and, his, of course, his new bride was looking at him. She got a little concerned. And quite honestly, she got a little upset with him. She said, how come you took your ring? ring off and he said oh it's cutting off my circulation and she looked at him like this she said that's what it's supposed to do it's supposed to cut off your circulation and i think what she meant by that you're not supposed to be out there kind of thinking about other girlfriends i'm your lady amen you're i'm the one you need to be focusing on there listen when there's a wedding vow a wedding vow between the man and the woman we always start with the man because we got to get on the man's case amen we got to say to the man i'll say brother justin repeat after me and when he was my as if he was my son i was a little more stern repeat after me amen you know repeat after me and you say you know, uh, you say to your wife, you know, I take you as my beloved wife and my best friend and so forth, so forth. Then you do all the vows on that. And then, then she repeats the same. But I, I really like it when, when couples kind of step out of their, their comfort zone and they want to be a little daring. They say, well, can we can we do our own vows? And I say, you can as long as I get to read them before you do them. Amen. Because I don't want them filtered out. Amen. Or something added there that's unbiblical. So unfortunately, those who have, they've been right on target with it. But I always like to ask if I can re- read their vows. Now, there's something exciting about couples who, who write their own vows out and exchange each other. There just seems to be a little bit more sentiment. There seems to be a little more attachment. And of course, those of you who repeat the vows, that doesn't mean what you repeat is wrong. It just means you're probably more nervous about the situation and afraid that you'll say something wrong there. I'm reminded about a man who gave his wedding vows and he was so excited about getting married and he loved his bride so much he said this in his wedding vows he said darling you're like my asthma you take my breath away you're like dandruff i can't get you off my head you're like my car you drive me crazy and he said in between you still drive me crazy man 
You're like my dentures. I can't smile without you. You know, in marriage, we have these we have these vows we give and there must be meaningful vows. They're not just repeating what the pastor says. They're not just repeating words, but saying with all of our heart that I'm giving my life to you and you're giving your life to me. Marriage is a sacred ceremony. But notice verse two, something else is special in this ceremony, which was at the midway point. It was about the third day. We see a special summons. We find here that in verse two, that a summons had gone out. First, an invitation first to Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, people back there in the Galilee area, they're kind of like those of you who come from certain provinces. Everybody knows everybody. You, know, you kind of zone in on where you're from and so forth there. And, you know, my, I, when I run to somebody who's from my father's province, they'll tell me what province they're from. I say, well, somewhere along the line, we must be cousins. Amen. Somewhere along the way, we know each other. And I'm hoping when I'm saying that, they might give me some money because of that. It hasn't worked yet. Amen. But, uh, but I always say that to try to get a listen and response or something out, like that out of them there. But here, everybody knew everybody they were just all they're all part they're galileans you might call that and uh, so jesus mother was there already from day one and jesus comes later on notice verse two uh, verse uh, verse one here uh, verse two says and both jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage now to me i think this is very touching because something that wonderful happened there jesus christ got invited to this marriage this is his first public introduction to all of Galilee and to the world that he is ministering. And very interesting, the very first public appearance Jesus makes after he's baptized by John is at a wedding. You know, this morning, the most important person to invite to your wedding, prospective wedding people, is Jesus Christ. And you know, the most important person to have in your wedding is Jesus Christ. And after we get married, the most important person to have in our home is Jesus Christ. And the most important person to stay in our home is Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse 2, Jesus came as a guest, but Jesus also came as God. We must distinguish in our minds that Jesus does not come into our marriages, into our homes, just as a guest. He doesn't long just to be there temporarily. I may come to your house, but when a certain time comes, I'm going to leave. When Jesus Christ comes to your home, it should be expected. He's here to stay. Amen. He comes not just as a guest, but he comes as God. And here's the difference maker. When you invite Christ into your home and God into your home, more than just a guest, you see something remarkable happening and you're praying as a couple and you're praying as an individual your workings that you do for god you see the lord working a mighty way i want to encourage you this morning whether you're single or whether you're married whether you're living at home with your parents or not living home with your parents i want to encourage this morning make it a point make it a priority that jesus christ comes not only as a guest but he stays there as god that he is worshiped on high may it not be our homes that there is an idol that's above god may it not be some device that's over jesus christ and we see here a special summons Jesus is invited to this place. He was invited there. And they had no idea by having Jesus there what a difference maker it would make in their home. Students, as you're going through studies, don't separate your life as saying, well, I've got my school life. And I've got my church life. No, it's all one and the same. And you have to understand, get Jesus Christ into your academics. Make Jesus God of the academics. And in your, in your career, as you're budding in your career and you're starting to, 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 to emerge as someone very important and you're getting promotions, never forget, it's not your career and then Jesus Christ. They all revolve around together. Put Jesus Christ centermost in these things. We see that Christ here is a special invited guest. He comes as a guest. He comes as God. He comes to this marriage. And what a wonderful thing that is. But notice the second thing this morning. We see a special event. But you notice in verses 3 and 4, this gets, now gets into the crux of our message. We see a sad endangerment. Notice it says, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. We have a situation here that is on the brink of a major disaster. It is, a, it is about, it's about to blow up here, okay? 
when they had events like that, they were supposed to plan out for the seven days of the ceremony sufficient food for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in between there, and all this kind of thing. They were supposed to have an abundance of food. They were supposed to make sure food was ready. They were supposed to make sure that they had beverage there for the people to drink, water and grape juice and all those kind of things. And they, they were to have all that there. And uh, Jesus' mother comes to him. He's coming into this, this wedding ceremony, Cain of Galilee. And she comes to him, and she's already known about this. She's close enough to the people involved in charge of the food. She realizes this is about to be a disaster. They found out they had no more wine. Now, to run short of water, excuse me, wine, or to run short of food would be a disaster. That would be a major embarrassment. That would be a shame you would never outlive. There would be a situation no one would ever forgive you for. You would, be, you would be looked down upon. I mean, it just would be a very, very embarrassing situation. If people, if you wanted to have an event again and people were part of an event you had previously where you ran short of food or wine, basically they, you, people would not come back because they, they would have felt insulted. They would have felt like, you know, you didn't care enough about us to take care of this. And it's not that it's not that 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 they were being mean. It was just it was a tradition that happened. And so Jesus comes this marriage. You have to understand he's coming not just as guest. He's coming as the son of God. He already knows about this problem, but he doesn't tell that to Mary. By the way, there's a lot of things Jesus knows about us that he waits for us to tell him to find out if we're going to get him involved with us. And so he does that a lot of times. And so we find Jesus comes here and Mary comes in. And again, Mary's being a mother. Mary's being a woman who's concerned about it. She wants to protect her friends. She doesn't want to see this marriage situation blow up. She doesn't want the bridegroom and the bride looked down upon by people as if they planned, they, they didn't plan very well. And she goes to him as a mother would go to him. But she came to him also as a believer would come to Jesus Christ. And she said, she just basically said, they have no wine. She could come to him because she had an intimate relationship with him. And she could come close to him. And it's a wonderful thing, brother and sister in Christ. When as we grow in the Lord and get close to the Lord, we can get just as close to Jesus as Mary did and just come out and say, they have no wine. I mean, we're missing something. And as he did so, everyone who knew about the situation, which is really pretty much uh, Mary and the servants and Jesus, they knew they had a disaster on their hand if something didn't happen. Now notice this again. Look at verse 3. It says, they have no wine. I asked you to underline that phrase. Underline the word phrase. That, the word wine. Wine in the Bible is always symbolic of joy happiness, a festivity, a good times, wonderful things. The word wine in the New Testament is the Greek word oikos. Oikos could be interchangeably a fruit of the vine, grape juice, or it could be wine itself. The context suggests to us which way it's used. When we find wine as an as a alcoholic beverage, it typically is in reference to someone becoming intoxicated or drunkard. And we look over here, there's no reference to that. My, 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 I'll just tell you my take as the word wine is used here and the word oikos, I believe is referring to freshly squeezed grape juice that was off the vine. I don't believe it was alcoholic beverages. I, I believe that many try to argue for it, but it was not an alcoholic beverage. There's nothing to suggest that. And by the way, Jesus would never do anything to contradict his nature. People ask the question about the Lord's table. Well, is it, or do we drink wine at the Lord's table? No, it's grape juice. The Bible is very specific. It was fruit, the fruit of the vine. It does not say wine. Jesus would not contradict his nature. If you add, if you look at grape juice or freshly squeezed droop, in order for it to become wine, you have to add something to it. There's an additive that has to be added to it to transform it. And that additive would be yeast. Yeast in the Bible or leaven is always a picture of sin. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5, it says a little leaveneth, leaveneth the whole love. Leaven is is always a picture of sin. And Jesus would, ha- would not do anything to ever contradict his nature. So Jesus comes here, and even though the, the, the writers here, as his translator used the word wine, I don't believe as we read the context of the passage, it's suggesting alcoholic beverage of any kind. I believe it's the sweet, wonderful, flowing, 
uh, taste, if you was kind of like a- apple cider, uh, when you squeeze it, that, that's what they were drinking. That's what they ran out of. And so they, Mary, Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, they have no wine. And again, as I said earlier, wine is a, is a, is a symbol of happiness and joy and festivity and good time. And when she said that, the words, as she said that, there was a look of alarm, a look of fear. A look of consternation because everybody came for happy reasons and every came, everyone came for festive reasons. But there's, she's saying here, they're out of happiness. They're out of joy. They're out of the one element that's symbolic of that. And as you look at that this morning, it speaks to me about this. It speaks to me, it should speak to you about our marriages and our home lives coming to a place when we have come to the point of depletion. It's the scripture, it's a sad description of a marriage that is depleted. It's when it's depleted of happiness, when it's depleted of joy, when it's depleted of selflessness and instead of selflessness there's selfishness it's depleted of spiritual direction it's depleted of answered prayers it's depleted of peace at home it's depleted of a spirit of forgiveness it is depleted of a spirit of working together look again at verse 3 mary said they have no wine this was a disaster it was indicative there was nothing left they were depleted everything they had was poured out and used up and somehow due to poor planning or due to the fact that maybe oversight is somebody's part they didn't have a backup reserve to fill up that which would be depleted she said they have no wine they have no purpose no enjoyment their love is gone they have no wine they have a marriage where first love is gone they have a marriage where there's criticism instead of contentment they have a marriage where there's arguing instead of agreement. They have a marriage where there's gold, but there's no God. They have a marriage where they have, they have hype, but no hope. They have a marriage where there's an image, but no investment. They have a marriage where there's the physical, but no spiritual. Jesus is standing there and Mary says, they have no wine. Now I wonder this morning, are you at a place in your life where there's been depletion? Are you at a place where you've been depleted of joy and happiness and contentment and peace and love and fulfillment and delightfulness? I mean, do you enjoy coming to church? Do you enjoy serving the Lord? Do you enjoy reading your Bible? Do you enjoy praying? Do you enjoy fellowshipping with God's people? Do you enjoy giving? Do you enjoy participating? Do you enjoy getting involved? I'm saying this morning, could we be at the place where someone is diagnosed, the Lord is diagnosed in their life, they have no wine, they have no more joy, they have no more energy, they have no more fervency, they have no more vision, they have no more desire, they've lost that joy, they've lost that happiness. I wonder this morning, are we at this place where we've kept giving? and giving and giving or we've kept taking and taking taking and we're taking in so much we're not giving anything out or we've given so much we haven't taken time to replenish our soul are we at this place where Mary recognized at this wedding they have no wine I want to tell you this morning as this marriage this marriage ceremony was at the halfway point I remind you today many times we can get past the starting point when you start off in marriage you're excited when you start the Christian life you're excited and you're enthused and you're on fire for God and you realize there's more of the Bible that you need to learn and you're hungry for it. I love our discipleship classes and watching new believers ask questions and want to know what does this mean and how does the Bible work and what about this and what about that and seeing the growth of their life. My wife has been working with the lady that we recently led to Christ and she's just growing in the Lord and she calls up my wife every now and then or sends her a message and says, I just read this and she says, uh, Mrs. Fong, I have a question about this and, and we can see the growth happening in their life and another lady came up the other night and just said, I've been praying about a family member that I'm very burdened about and she said, just God has been working me. I've just had so many burdens and God, I feel like God's lifted that burden off 
off my life. And, she, and that family member came to the ladies' meeting yesterday. We're so excited. I saw the family member there. We're excited to see them. They're not saved. We're praying they'll get saved very soon. And we start off really good. We start our marriages on fire. And we start off the Christian life on fire. And we first start learning so many. We get on fire for God. And we start getting involved in serving the Lord. We're on fire. And we give our first tithe on fire. But as we start making our way and get halfway through it like they were at the marriage of Cain of Galilee, we get halfway there. All of a sudden, we start to lose steam. And we start to lose our energy and our involvement and our concern. And we get like them. We're at the point where we've given out and given out and given out that we have no wine. I wonder this morning if we're at this place in our Christian life. We've given everything out, but there's nothing more to give. Hey, Christian friend, I want to encourage you this morning. Don't be at the place where you have no more wine. This is a time to evaluate. Say, Lord, replenish that which is missing in my life today. Are you running on empty? Are you out of fuel? Are you depleted? They have no wine. What a sad endangerment. What a sad endangerment to be a church that's 19, going on 20 years of age. Listen to me this morning. To be 20 years of age and to lose your steam for God. To lose your enthusiasm. And say, let somebody else do it. No, let's all do it, not let somebody else do it. Amen? Churches are now pushing off to somebody else. Churches is about us getting involved. It's about, about God. It's about us getting involved and getting involved in serving the Lord. Listen, don't be a church that gets to the 20-year mark and you start losing steam and you, you have no more wine and you have no more fuel and there's nothing of the Holy Spirit fueling up your life and help you. Oh, what to God, we spend some time in the presence of God and say like the psalmist, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. We need to get to the very presence of God and get a freshness of the presence of God in our life so that we're able to keep on going for the glory of God. We see a sad endangerment. But notice if you would, verses 5 to 8, she comes to Jesus. And by the way, aren't you glad this morning when you're depleted and you're out of fuel and things are low? Aren't you glad you can come to Jesus? Aren't you glad about that this morning? Aren't you glad you can come to the Savior and He listens sympathetically and He's ready to do something there? And He responds to Mary and says, well, you know, my time hasn't come. But that didn't mean He wasn't going to work for her. She just was. She just didn't know really what to expect and she just knew the best way she could. She just said, they have no wine. And Jesus went right in, would go into motion there. And I want you to notice something. Mary recognized the, the, the depletion problem. Jesus knew about the depletion problem. So the issue comes down to this. The question comes to this. What are we going to do about it? I got, a, I got a message yesterday from somebody that was kind of just very, um, I had to think through this. And the more I thought through that, I was feeling kind of bad because I thought, they're throwing a problem at me and they want me to solve it. And it wasn't my problem. You ever have that happen? <laughs> they throw you a problem, but it's really not your problem. But since it got thrown at me, I'm expected to solve it. And I thought, man, I'm, I said, Jesus, they have no wine. <laughs> Aren't you glad this morning you give it to Jesus? He has a solution. Now, it may not happen as fast as you want it to happen, but it will happen. It may not happen the way you want it. You think in your mind it should turn out, but it'll happen. And I want you to notice, Jesus is teaching as a principle. What do you do when your life is at a place there is no more wine? You're at a place of depletion and a place of emptiness and you're out of fuel. What do we do in that situation? There is no plan B, by the way. It's only a plan A. And you'll notice number three, we see number one, we see a celebrated event. And number two, we see a sad endangerment. But number three, would you notice the spiritual essentials? 
Now, and I want to highlight this third point because this is how God works in your behalf and my behalf to getting us past this place where we're running on empty and we're running on sadness and we're running on depression. We're running on discouragement. We're running on anger. We're running on bitterness. We're running on depleted souls and we're gasping for breath and wondering what to do. It's like we've been underwater longer than we should have and we've got to come up for a breath of air so we can get some breath to replenish ourselves. And I want to remind you this morning, please listen, brother and sister in Christ. The essentials are not psychological essentials. And the essentials are not secular essentials. And the essentials are not what this counselor over here says there and what this counselor says over there. We've got to see from God's Word this morning, there are spiritual essentials. God has a methodology. God has a way of showing us the essentials. What is What do we need to do in order to get the replenishment we need to get back going and to see the, the God taking a situation's disasters and turning it around. And we're going to see how Jesus is going to turn water into wine. But for that to happen, there are certain essentials that had to be in place for this to come about. Notice, first of all, what Mary is involved with this. Notice first one, verse 5, there has to be an absolute compliance. Now Mary already knew in verse 4 after Jesus spoke to her that he's going to do something about it. Very few people talk about the faith of Mary, but beginning when she was told that she would be the, the, the uh, that she would uh, give birth, uh, have it be, be the mother of a virgin birth. I mean, Mary's a woman of great faith, credible faith. I mean, to believe that, that, that she would be the only woman on earth that have a, a virgin-born baby. I mean, think about that faith. And, and then think about for the next nine months as she went back to the city of Nazareth, which was a, a city filled with many, much gossip and, and condemnation. And, and she and Joseph had to endure the condemnation and the snickering and, and the terrible things people would say about her and Joseph. But she went along and just ignored those things and, and lived for God. And, and she brought forth the baby Jesus nine months later there in Bethlehem. I mean, just, you think about her. And now we go over here to chapter 2. And Jesus is 33 years old, 30 years old and, and very probably is at least in her 50s and, and uh, she's, she's at a place in life where she's much more mature and much older there and uh, she's at this place where I've learned to exercise faith before and I've got to exercise faith again. And she doesn't ask any questions of Jesus because she knows he's going to do something. She'd watch him do things in their home. She watched him do, she knew what he was capable of doing. And so she doesn't ask any questions. And notice what she does in verse 5. She turns to the servants of all people. Look at that. She turns to the servants, and this is what she says. Now, she knew those servants, and they knew her, and she was very close to the family there. And the Bible says in verse 5, And whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Say that with me, please, together. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. I can't hear you. Let's say it together. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Listen, if we do that, that will do so much good for our Christian life. Absolute compliance. Total obedience. The first, so the first key sentence is we must be obedient to the Lord's counsel. God's commandments are not grievous. Sometimes we get this place, we, we hear a command and we, we, and we get a little nervous about it because, oh, here we go, another command. But God's commands are not grievous. God's commands are boundary lines He puts into our lives to keep us from wrong and to keep us in the circle that's right. Listen, everything in law has to have boundaries. Everything in, in, in the world has to have some kind of boundaries of some kind to keep us in the right place there. And Jesus, she says to these servants, what's if He saith unto you? Do it. There's this matter of compliance. Listen, in marriage, we've been talking about something that's very difficult. We've been talking about husbands that we are to that there's a mutual responsibility husbands and wives and we've said husbands are we, we have to dwell with our wives according to knowledge giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel that's not the 
uh, human thing to do. And that's not the, not the human, but that's not the natural thing to do because as we get along, we, 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 we don't see ourselves as compensating for, for weaknesses and things. And we have to remind ourselves that where our wife may be different from us, that may be, that may be an indication of just a difference in her personality that God made to, so we can compensate for that. But then he says to women, to the wives, he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And we looked at that and we looked last week at Ephesians 4 about homeland security and we learned about all those different kind of things. But the bottom line of all those things is that it's all only good if we obey the counsels of the Lord. Whatsoever means whatsoever. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She's telling those servants, listen, I can't tell you how it's all going to unfold, but I can tell you this, have faith in God and obey the Lord and watch it unfold. Amen? And the first essential, we must understand this morning, if we're going to get, we're going to have restoration, and we're going to see a miracle marriage and a miracle home, and the first thing we must give ourselves to is this matter of absolute compliance. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Listen, if you're not fulfilled in serving the Lord, it might be because we're trying to rewrite the job description that's already been given to us in the Word of God. And you know this, if you work at a job, you get a job description, and if you try to rewrite it, you are not going to be a happy camper because your manager is not going to be a happy camper. Here's the second thing. Notice the second thing. Notice in verses 5 to 8. Would you underline the word in verse 5, servants? The first thing, the first essential is absolute compliance. The second essential is we must be anonymous caretakers. And what is that? We need to have a servant's attitude. Did you notice as you read verses 5 to 8? There's no name of any of the servants. Now I'll tell you this. I think there are minimum at least six servants because there were six water pots they took. And maybe there were 12 servants. Because I'm not even sure one man could carry one water pot by himself as we'll see in a moment. Because those water pots were extremely heavy. A water pot probably could weigh between on a low side of 18, 18 gallons and to a high side of 27 gallons. It probably took two people. So likely there could have been probably 12 servants there minimum. Taking, assuming it took two men to carry the water pot just by nature, the bulkiness of the size and the weight of it and the capacity. Regardless of what the numbers, I want you to understand these were servants. These were anonymous caretakers. Look again. His mother saith unto the servants. In the verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, the servants. And then notice verse 7. They, the servants, fill them up to the brim. In verse 8, they bear it. And then verse 9, the servants withdrew the water. Listen, the second essential is so important. We must have a servant's attitude. We must have a servant's heart. Guys, do you remember when you first started courting your wife? You, you started when she was your girlfriend. You just carted her and you'd do anything for her. That servant's heart. We still need to have that. Ladies, remember when you realized that this guy was the guy that you felt like God was putting your life, you started to have a servant's heart, but we grow farther apart because we don't have the servant's attitude and the servant's heart. And all I'm trying to say here is Mary gave them a good principle. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She says, now do this. And she talked to the servants. And I'm just saying this morning that as we, we go on in life, if we want to see restoration, we've got to go back to having a servant's heart. A servant attitude is content with getting the job done. A servant's attitude is pleasing God. A servant attitude is a, has a can-do attitude. And we don't look for ways of saying, I cannot do it. We look for ways of saying it can be done. A servant's attitude is not looking for credit as long as the credit goes to God. Amen? A servant's attitude is in, in marriage and home goes a long way in resolving, a ho- resolving issues in a home where the wine or happiness is not going on. Listen, instead of just crossing our arms and having a stalemate there between us and our spouse and waiting to see who's the first one that's going to bend, we need to have a servant's attitude that I'm going to be the first one to go because that's the essential of that. And you'll notice here that these were anonymous caretakers. We don't find these men, these servants saying a word. We don't 
find any rebuttal on their behalf. We don't find them making any corrections or any criticisms to Mary or to Jesus. We don't see them telling Jesus, well, we, we tried it that way and it didn't work. We just see a very good attitude. And the attitude was, whatever He says to us, we're just going to do it. We have to have a servant's attitude in our home, in our marriages. Listen, we're going to hit rust spots and we're going to be on empty. But with a servant's attitude, we're making good progress to seeing replenishment. Then notice the third thing. We see absolute compliance and we see a, we see a servant's attitude. But notice verse 6. Notice the available containers. Right after Mary talks to these servants and they know they're under command now. The command is shifted from the household to Jesus. Attention is focused by John, the writer John. He says there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now that's very significant. These water pots, as I mentioned, one water pot, uh, a firkin, a firkin was, you know, two or three firkins, that was between 18 to 27 gallons of, of, of water. And these water pots, as they specifically were, were only supposed to hold water. They weren't supposed to hold any other kind. They were on the outer court. So as you entered in, if imagine as I'm entering to someone's home, this is the outer court. And then over by the pulpit here is the inner court where, where, where all the, the life and activity of the home revolves. As I come to the outer court, you couldn't help but see these six water pots of stone. They were set aside for the purpose of purifying. People would walk in and they would use that water to wash your feet, to wash your hands. They would use that water to wash your pots and their pans. It was set aside there as the Bible describes in verse 6 for the purposes of the purifying of the Jews. The Jews were very meticulous about keeping things clean. They didn't like dishes piling up. They didn't want people coming in with dusty feet. You know, it's like coming to most people's homes. You ask the question, should I take my shoes off? And I, we're almost inclined, yes, we should take our shoes off. In those days, basically, if people walked, walked across the sand and the dirtiness and all that, it was, it was a customary. And you were seen as a good host to have those water pots there so they could wash your feet and wash your hands. And they'd feel a bit better as they came into your home. And you'd feel a bit better knowing they came in with, with their feet and their hands clean. And so this is set aside. But notice something interesting. These, these pots we see here, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying the Jews, of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, here's my thought I want to give you this morning. The water pots were there for only one purpose, and that was to be filled with water for purification purposes. But at that moment of time, those water pots were either partially filled or not filled. They, they were, they were, because Jesus would give a command later on. And these water pots had a special usage. Now, everybody who came to that marriage, nobody was paying attention to those water pots. They just assumed those water pots or those containers were there just for the sake of cleaning. But Jesus looked and he saw people, he saw, he saw vessels that could be put to good use. I walked around, I've been walking around the last several Sundays. I purposely took myself out of Sunday school rotation or teaching in the CSD or somewhere like that for the last, last few Sundays. We'll do it for a few more. I'm just kind of walking around the campus. I'm observing our Sunday school rooms and our class. That's why I'm walking around for some of you. I'm looking inside our classroom, standing up inside there. I'm not just checking out the teachers, though I'm doing that. Amen. I'm not just checking out the teachers, but I'm also going in. I'm trying to find out who's in the class and I'm looking around. I'll tell you what, what the Lord put in my heart this morning very, very heavily. He's been doing it all, all the last several weeks, but very, very heavily. God's put in my heart, boy, this person could be teaching class and this person could start a class and this person could be a teacher and this person could be over here doing this and this person and I'm, th- and I'm looking at this I said man we've got a lot of manpower that needs to be put to work there and that's what Jesus was doing he looked at those vessels and he saw these empty vessels he saw these vessels that had huge capacity do you know something this morning God looks at you and me and he sees large capacity in your life and me he sees us with the ability to do more than what we're really doing he sees us having not just a one gallon capacity but an 18 to 27 gallon 
capacity, a capacity that can be used for the glory of God. Listen, if you're only doing something one hour a week for the Lord, there's more you can do. There's more capacity that God can get out of you. There's more mileage the Lord can get out of your life there. And so Jesus looked at these people. And I want you to notice these available containers. God looks at you and me. And here's what he sees. He sees us as vessels that should be unto honor. In 2 Timothy 2, the Bible tells us this. In a great house, there are vessels or containers of gold and of silver, of wood and earth. Earth meaning earthen vessels or clay vessels. And he says, some of honor, some of dishonor. And he says, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. Sanctified in me for the master's use and prepared under every good work. Now here's my thought this morning. The third essential is that we must be clean vessels, honorable vessels for the glory of God. We've got to realize that for God to use us, for God to fill up our empty lives, we've got to get our lives emptied out of those things that are holding us back and those things that cause depletion. It might be underneath the vessel. There's a crack underneath the vessel that's caused some of the fluid to come out. It could be on the side of the vessel there's a crack that's caused the, the fluid to come out. It could be that it's been depleted and it's been left dust and nobody and it's been neglected and nobody's put anything in that vessel and before we put water into it we've got to clean it hey it might be this morning that the Lord needs to clean out our vessel before we can get it replenished again and all I'm saying to you today the Lord wants us to be available containers are you available for God to use you are you a clean vessel a holy vessel yes you say well pastor you don't understand I, I'm not sure if God can use me I don't I don't think God can use me and I want to remind you this morning the Bible says in second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 for we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You let God take care of the replenishment. And you let God take care of filling you and I. You just need to be, and I need to be, vessels unto honor. We must be set aside for the Lord. Depleted life can only be refilled once the dirt and impurities are removed. The first essential is obedience. The second essential, we must have a servant's attitude. The third essential, we must be vessels unto honor. But you notice the fourth essential. This is so important. Watch what's happening. There must be obedience. We must have a servant's heart. Our vessels must be clean unto honor. And notice the fourth one tells us about an authoritative content. Notice he tells them what they're going to fill it up with. I want you to understand something this morning. There was no more wine. Harvest was done. No one was trading grapes. The grapes had been picked. They couldn't go out. They couldn't run out to Costco, do a Costco run. They couldn't do a Safeway run. They couldn't do a, they couldn't do a Food Max run. Why? Because they didn't have stores that sold that. You harvested your own grapes and you treaded on your own grapes. And as you treaded out, it was done. And you collected it and you saved it up for special occasions. And many times the Jews, what they would do is they would boil down the grape juice that was done until it became a very thick, uh, syrupy type of essence. And they would put it in a very cool container. Sometimes they'd bear it under the ground or they put it inside an earthen vessel and they would take it back out for a special occasion like this where kind of like what we do with frozen juices they would take it out except it would be a, a very thick syrupy essence when they put it into a container and they pour water into it and they'd mix it up and it would be a, a very sweet refreshing thing they didn't have any of that it was all used up there was no more wine i mean it was it, it was impossible at that moment for that home and that family to produce any grape juice any it was all depleted it was all gone something miraculous had to happen there and want you to notice what happens here jesus sees servants Jesus sees obedience. Jesus sees these empty vessels. And you know what he tells them to do? Watch what he says. He goes over there in verse 8 and he tells them this. Notice if you would, verse 8. Verse, verse 7, excuse me. Fill the water pots with water. They fill them up to the brim. Water in the Bible 
is often symbolic of the Word of God. The washing of water by the Word. Now I want you to notice as he's talking about filling the water pots with water. It's filling those empty, clean containers with an essential that needed to be filled up to the brim. Not partially. All the way. And the authoritative content I want you to notice this morning, we need to fill up our lives with the Word of God. Can I hear an amen? We need to fill our lives up with the Word of God. Let's fill our lives up to the brim with God's Word. Listen this morning. God's Word for you and I is so necessary. We need God's Word for its mandates. We need God's Word because it's a mirror. We need God's Word because it's a medicine. We need God's Word because we make mistakes. We need God's words because we need motivation. Listen, notice again in verse 7. It's not singular. It's plural. Fill the water pots with water. There's a message for Heritage Baptist Church. and Let's fill our water pots up to the brim with water. Let's get filled up with the Word of God. We don't need less of God's Word. We need more of God's Word this morning. Listen, today, this message is, this message is for couples. Water pots, again, is plural. Both spouses, not one spouse, should be filled to the brim with water. Listen, this, this is a remarkable thing about marriage. You're going to have a day, because two, are, two become one and two are better than one, you're going to have one day, husbands, you're going to be filled to the brim with the Word of God and you're wife might be partially partially filled but you get to compensate for that and there'll be days ladies you're going to be filled to the brim with the word of god and your husband might be struggling he might be partially that's okay you compensate for that you're completing one another in that capacity there you're helping one another in that the essence of what i'm saying here today if we're going to get replenishment listen there must be the clean vessels there must be obedience there must be a servant's attitude but on top of all that we must not get filled up with self-help we must not get filled up with medicine we've got to get filled up with the only thing that can help our lives and that is the precious wonderful word of God in our lives now, Colossians 3.16 look at that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms singing making melody in your hearts to the Lord and whatsoever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, that is a fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. You know when Paul wrote that in Colossians chapter 3, and I know I skipped ahead a little bit. You know when he wrote that in chapter 3, verses 16, 20? You know who he's talking to? Christians are depleted. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. They fill the water pots to the brim with water. If we got nothing out of this morning, we need to fill our lives up with the water of God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 6 reminds us for every home. In chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Listen to this. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk to them when thou sittest in thy house. And when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down. And when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand. And they shall be as frontless between thy eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of the house and thy gate. Hey, listen what he's saying there. Listen, make the word of God prominent throughout all of your home. Get the Word of God in your home. Here's why we're depleted. We've run short of the Word of God. We've poured ourselves out. We see a celebrated event. We see a marriage ceremony. We see sad endangerment. They have no wine. Jesus gives us spiritual essentials. The essential of obedience. 
The essential of a servant's attitude. The essential of an available, empty, clean container. The essential of filling up that container with the Word of God. Up to the brim. Did you notice verses 8 to 10 as we close this morning? Watch as the miracle occurs through the power of Jesus Christ. In verses 8 to 10 as we close, would you notice the satisfying experience? The servants filled them to the brim. And notice verse 8. Jesus gives one more command. Draw out now. He didn't tell them to wait. Draw out now. And bear it to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Notice we're told something remarkable we bypass. And we don't give, we don't give a lot of credit to. The water was turned into wine. Did you see that? It wasn't wine before that. But as Jesus told them to fill the water pots up with water, it became wine. It miraculously changed. It was turned around. It was transformed. The chemical properties of that water was no longer water. It was wine. It was grape juice. It was changed. It was no longer just bland water. It was sweet tasting grape juice. It had all the properties of grape juice in it. He says, and when, he, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants withdrew the water. Isn't that kind of interesting? The servants who spoke not a word, they knew exactly what had happened there. I believe God gives us, as we have a servant's attitude about His work and towards each other, He gives us a special insight that those of us who don't have that servant's attitude we're growing in, we lack. He gives us an insight about things that we need to have. The servants knew. They knew as they were pouring it out, as Jesus told them to pour it out, they knew, sure, we'll, we'll be glad to give it out because this, turned into water, this water was turned into wine. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he saith unto him, Every man in the beginning does set forth wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. As we close, would you notice some things I want to give you today? The water was miraculously transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what Jesus did. This was a miracle marriage. Nothing like this has ever happened since then. Nothing ever happened like this before that. It only happened this one time. Water was transformed into wine there at the marriage feast of the Cain of Galilee. Now let's watch what happens here. Our dried up marriages can be made new. Our depleted marriages can be overflowing with happiness again. Our sorrow can be turned into joy. Our bitterness can be sweet once again. Hey, think about it in Exodus chapter 15 when they came to the waters of Marah and they taste those waters they say were bitter. They told them, they told, God told Moses, cut down a tree and cast a tree thereof and the tree turned the bitter waters into sweet. Listen, we get God's word and we get Jesus Christ into the thing. He takes the bitter and makes it sweet there. Your home could go from being a battlefront to being peace on earth. Notice in verse 8, draw out now. God's word, when it's filled up, you have something to draw out. You have something to give out. You have something to give to people. We may not be the most creative. We may not be the most, most talented. But we can be the most filled up with God's word. And we can have something to give back that's an investment in someone else's life. Notice as time moves along, it just keeps getting better. Notice what the governor of the feast says. Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And then when men have well drunk, that which is worse. You know, saying there over time we start off with our best but it starts to go downhill over time here's what he's saying here but that was kept the good wine until now he was saying you know what when our lives are filled up with god's word and we're obedient in our homes and we have a servant's attitude and we're available containers what he's saying instead of it getting worse instead of it going downhill it keeps on getting better 
It just gets better and better and better. That was kept the good wine until now. He's saying, this is remarkable. This is the third day of the feast. And most people, their senses have been kind of just kind of diluted there. and They don't know good from bad. But he says, this is definitely sparkling, wonderful, wonderful wine or grape juice we're drinking here. That is, this, this touches our, our taste buds in a wonderful way. That was kept the good wine until now. And I want to tell you this day, you could have been married 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years and 50 years and 60 years. But it could keep on getting better if you just apply what God's saying here. As time moves along, it just keeps getting better. As time moves along, it gets sweeter every day. But do you notice what's going on here? They had enough for the rest of the ceremony. And it stayed sweet that whole time. It was sustainable. Everything we do in life, everyone looks at, is it sustainable? You can have a sustainable marriage and a sustainable home and a sustainable spiritual life. It just keeps on getting better. He's saying is they've, they've kept the good wine until now. There's a freshness right in the midway point. And we can have a freshness. Don't give your worst as you draw. Don't give your worst to your leftovers. Be filled with God's word so you never run out of joy and peace and happiness. Listen, the best is still to come. A disaster is averted. A miracle has occurred. Thou hast kept the best until now. The, the water was turned to wine. And tonight, this morning, God can take our lives and our disasters and our nightmares and our darkness and our heartaches and our, and our difficult experiences and our sorrows and even our depressions and maybe just we're laden down with sins and weights and have us down. I want to tell you this morning, by applying the spiritual senses that we see in John chapter 2, God can transform disaster into a miracle. He can take a situation that seems like it's spinning out of control and doesn't look as it has any, any hope in it. He can turn the hopeless into hope. He can turn the darkness into light. He can transform a sinner into a saint. I'm saying this morning, let Jesus Christ have control. What a wonderful story this morning. God is still able to refill a depleted life. God is able to change a disastrous situation. A man got saved. <clears throat> and prior to his salvation, he had a terrible life. He ran with the wrong crowd. He drank excessively alcohol. He smoked terribly. He'd come home, he smelled like a furnace. Hard on his wife, hard on his children. He always wondered from one day to the next would they have food on the table. A preacher from Baptist Church knocked on that door one day. Told that man about the Savior. The man got confronted with his sins. He called on Jesus Christ to save him. That man realized he got saved. His life had to change. Nobody had to tell him anything. He knew he'd been forgiven of his sins and he knew he was a terrible sinner. One day somebody asked the little girl in that family, they said, well, your dad, she, they said, your dad's a terrible person. They said, we just learned a story today about Jesus turning water into wine. And she says, what do you think God's done for you? She says, I'm not really sure what, I really have to tell you this, but I could tell you this, where before we didn't have food, now we have food on the table. Where before I had a drunkard daddy, now I've got a happy daddy. And where before we didn't go to church, my daddy leads us to church. Hey, I'm going to tell you today, if any man therefore be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God specializes in changing things. In the book of Exodus, he turns the Nile River into blood. The gospel of John, he turns water into wine. He could turn a disaster into a miracle. A hopeless marriage into a happy marriage. Unforgiveness to forgiveness. 
bitterness to sweet, darkness to light. Turn your sorrow into joy. This morning, do you need a miracle? Do you need the Lord to change something? He can still do it. Just as he did it behind the scenes there, he's doing it behind the scenes in your heart, in my heart. But we must follow those essentials. There must be obedience. There must be a servant's attitude. We must be empty, clean vessels. And we must be filled up with the Word of God. Would you do that this morning? Would you take a moment and boldly, you're feeling that sense you need a miracle today in your life of that nature, where there's no more wine, there's no more joy, and say, God, I've got to get it back. I need it right now. Would you be bold enough and have enough conviction to say, Lord, I'm just going to come with my spouse, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. I'm going to find it at the altar this morning to humble myself before God say, God, I need you today. If today you're here and you're not saved, Jesus wants to turn you from a sinner who's on the way to hell to someone who could be saved on the way to heaven. You can't do it yourself. He has to do the changing. He can change it. He can change your destiny if you accept Jesus Christ today as your Savior. Father, this morning, thank you for your congregation listening so carefully and so attentively. <clears throat> thank you for this wonderful, touching story we read here about a couple which we don't even know their names. But marriage ceremony that is halfway through and a disaster is on the brink. They had no wine. They're out of resources. They were depleted. They were unempty. But thank God they got Jesus involved. And He didn't come just as a guest. He came as God. And Lord, this morning we need the power of God to help fill up depleted, empty lives. Lives that need a miracle. A transformation. A change. Spiritually. Maritally. Otherwise, Lord, we need a change this morning. God, deliver us from being so proud that we don't think we need to come forward and do something. But I pray for marriages to be honest, children and parents to be honest, truthful with you, even as Mary came truthfully for this family. And the remarkable thing is, the governor of the feast said, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. It's still good. It keeps getting better. It's sustainable. Maybe, Lord, this morning there are brothers and sisters all over the room. They're running on empty. They're out of fuel. They're depleted and dried up. And today at the altar, they can find that place with your word and your spirit to get refilled again. Father, help us to recognize emptiness in our hearts. We're out of something that we need greatly. I pray all over the room we would come with a humble heart, a desire for God to do something, and realizing just as this was a miracle that was done in public, We need to make decisions that are in public that will glorify you. Not waving our arms and giving attention to ourselves, but privately at the altar, but publicly before man and before God, saying, Lord, I need you today. And thank God we see a story here where God, this beginning of miracles, Jesus made a difference. I pray for a miracle in marriages and homes and lives where, Lord, we're facing the brink of disaster. May you be in control. May, Lord, today someone here that's without Christ get saved today. We commit this part of the service to you. I pray that folks will come, Lord, because the Spirit of God has spoken. And we pray for this now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Let's stand. And as you stand, if God has worked in your heart, would you come? Are you running on empty? Are you depleted? You need to get something for the Lord. You need a replenishment of joy. Are you only partially filled? Are you empty? Do you need something from God? 
that you can't get from the entertainment world. Let's get it from the Lord today. Let's get refilled today. Let's get filled to the brim with the Word of God. Draw out now and bear it to the feast. Would you come today? Thank God for those who are coming humbly saying, God, I need something today. Are you running on fumes? You're running on yesterday's gas when you need a fresh en- 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 enablement today? Come today. Let's get from God what we need. Is your service on fire for God? Are you like these servants that let your obedience to the Lord? Or is it just everything going on? We're just questioning the Lord and asking God, how about this? And what about this? And instead of just coming with a questioning attitude, just saying, Lord, that attitude, whatsoever we saith, do it. Are we as completely obedient as we should be? Are we struggling with the area of disobedience? Are we struggling with being vessels unto honor? This is a moment to come. And then today, if you're not 100% sure you're saved and going to heaven, we invite you this morning, come to Christ. Let Him forgive you your sins. Let Him turn you from a child of darkness into a child of light, from a child of the devil to a child of God. Come this morning. One of our workers can take the Bible and show you this morning how to be saved. Would you come? Father, around the auditorium, we look at this passage, and boy, our hearts are moved, and our hearts are stirred. And we realize, Lord, that, that God, there's a great work that you're doing. But we thank you today. It's God which worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Help, Lord, the reconstructive process and the refueling process we need in our lives. Holy Spirit, fill us again. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your power. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit this morning where we've been depleted. Help us get filled up again. Thank you, Lord, for your people who've come today to worship you. We give you the honor, the glory, and the praise for what the Word of God has taught us today. And, Lord, as we dismiss in a moment, may you be glorified. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to see a Connect video just to kind of get us updated on some things about the church that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. And after it's done, Brother Jorge Dello will come lead us in closing prayer.